Art Saney, Radio for the Imagination, is a weekly show spotlighting the arts. And now, your host, Paula Granquist. Good morning. This is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. Another zany morning here on Art Zany. Woo, we made it. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for your patience. And of course, this is the show that celebrates creating in stories, and I am ready to tune our imaginations together. You know, when I was little, I remember that I loved playing school and reenacting television commercials with my sister in our basement playroom. The room had this chalkboard, school desks, and the little open space we used as the stage. We took home extra mimeographed worksheets and distributed them to our pretend students and stuffed animals. We loved to put on shows and uh, dance and act out our most popular television commercials. So some of them I remember doing were pop, pop, fizz, fizz, oh, what a relief it is. I don't know if you remember that one. And that was one of our favorites. There's also I'd Like to Buy the World a Coke or My Baloney Has a First Name. There are so many fun shows. And, of course, after we acted out the commercial, now here's the part that takes a turn. That's when I went to work because what I loved to do was I loved to try to figure out how these ad makers created these productions. How did they come up with these catchy tunes? How did they decide on the characters? And I used to map out in my mind all the different options they tested and rejected and then try to work out how they settled on the one that made it to the airwaves. It was a little weird exercise. I know I was a little bit of a uh, nerdy kid, but I've always been curious about the imagination and the ways of the minds. My happiest moments are when I am engaged in that playful dance with the creative process and the world of artistic endeavors. And I'm amazed at what we can bring forth into the world and the infinite possibilities that exist. I'm passionate about teaching that we are all infused with the potential of creating. The world is a better place because we make art. Share art and experience art. I say to art is human. And this, of course, is easier to believe and act on when we are a kid in our play place. It's more challenging to connect to this place as an adult. We must work a little harder to access the imagination. We need to carve out time for these art experiences. And we have to work through our fears about beginning and failing, our worries about what other people will think, and what we believe about our capacity to understand and make art. And I think the world would be a better place if we embraced the power of creating and added more art to our daily lives. That's why I do Arts Any Radio. There is so much power in the arts. Please remember this. There is power in art, but you have to harness that potential. And that potential has the capacity to transform our lives. Art is for all humans. Art can teach us about the ways of the world, reflect our shared fears and life experiences. And art can show us our own hearts and desires. Art is transformative. I'm thrilled today to introduce to you my next guest on Art Zany Radio. She has the most amazing art job in the world, teaching and training people to use art to solve problems. And I know this is going to be an amazing show, so I'm excited you're here with us. Today in the Art Zany Radio studio, my guest is Amy E. Herman, author of Fixed, how to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And she's also the founder of the Art of Perception, Inc., offering professional development courses for leaders around the world. Her website, artfulperception.com, if you want more details. And Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving, is gives us access to what she has taught to the FBI, NATO, the State Department, Interpol, Scotland Yard, and many more organizations and their leaders. And they've all been using her ways to solve their most intractable problems and it's it's really about finding using a powerful paradigm shift to find solutions and to see things differently and to use art to challenge our thinking and open up possibilities we might have otherwise overlooked so i'm very excited to welcome to the show amy herman let me go ahead and turn on the mic good morning amy Thank you. I, I do. I'm passionate about the arts. And this is a, a, a way of, of using the arts that I had never heard of before. And so I'm so excited to, you know, to share your fascinating work with our listeners. And I want to ask you, were you fascinated by art and imagination as a child? 
you know, I, as I was listening to you tell your story about those commercials, every single one of those commercials resonated with me. And <laughs> I was. I loved art from, a chi- from childhood. And I should say that I'm not an artist. I don't consider myself a, pr- a creative person in the traditional sense. But I remember walking into a museum with my parents and seeing, you know, these small French paintings from the 19th century and not knowing who they were by. I just thought to myself, someone painted those, someone created those colors, someone had this vision in their head. And I was so taken with the effect on that, on me. Mm. That I thought they, these works of art are so powerful. And so what I'm so grateful to be doing every day is channeling that power of art and bringing it to people who wouldn't necessarily think about looking at art to help them do their jobs more effectively. And I just love, love, love what I do. I, I can tell uh, it's absolutely uh, in, in apparent in your book. I'd, I'd like to start, too, because you had another amazing job, which was working with the Frick co- Collection, and um, people may not know about that, so I'd love for you to sort of walk the halls with us and help us enter some of those rooms and hear some of your stories about being in that place, which must have been an, another amazing job. It absolutely was. I worked at the Frick Collection for 12 years, and there's a big chunk of my heart that's still mm-hmm. uh, buried deep inside that house. Uh, when I, I'm an attorney, I say I'm a recovering attorney, and I'm also an art historian, and so I like to think that I've combined the practical aspects of each of those disciplines, legal analysis and visual analysis, to do what I'm doing now. But the first job that I took when I left the private practice of law I went to work at the Frick Collection, and for those listeners who are not familiar with it, it's a small gem of an art museum in New York City, and it is probably one of the top ten private art collections in the world. It's the former home. It's housed in the former home of Henry Clay Frick, who was a steel and and, uh, coal magnate, and or coke, I should say, steel and coke, and he amassed this beautiful, beautiful and just priceless art collection during his lifetime and then in a in a gesture of great generosity after his wife died he left the collection to the public and they converted the house into an art museum wow. it has been open to the public since 1935 mr frick's daughter continued to steward the collection and continued to collect and many of the board members were family members for many many years And one of the things that makes the Frick Collection different from other museums is that it is still housed in the home of Mr. Frick. So you walk into a living hall and you walk into a dining room and you walk into a library and the works are not arranged by country or year or artist. They're arranged by what looks good together, Hmm. what furniture goes with what paintings, what colors match the upholstery on the furniture, how do the curtains fit in. And it gives you a very, very special feeling of not only looking at some of the greatest masterpieces from the 14th to the 19th centuries, but you're also walking through the halls of someone's home, and it gives the idea of connoisseurship and collecting a whole new meaning. I have to put that on my list. I assume it's still open for visitors. Uh, Interestingly enough, it is open, but they are renovating Mr. Frick's home, so the works of art themselves have moved, (laughs) and they are in what used to be the Whitney's building, a brutalist. It's called the Breuer building, about two blocks away. And to see these works of art in a modern building, it's almost jarring, but it's fabulous because you see the work really can stand on its own. And I think the Frick Collection, the building will be done probably in about two years, is my understanding. Wow. What so a, yes, you can see the collection itself, but not in its original home. What a great collection that must have been and a great education for you to, you know, be immersed in that environment and to be able to wander those hallways. And one of the things my whole life. I can imagine, because one of those things you were supposed to do was to um, bring people to, to visit the art and develop educational programs. And I think I find it interesting. One of the early ones that you did was with doctors and nurses. How did that happen? Well, when I, uh, when I got to the Frick Collection, I was working in their education department, and one of my volunteers came up to me and said, did you hear what they're doing at Yale? I hear it's fabulous. I said, no, what are they doing? She said, I don't know, but I heard it's fabulous. <laughs> so I went to, I called Yale, and I, I called my colleagues at Yale, and it turns out that they were running a program for, uh, for dermatology residents, and the idea was very simple. Take these residents out of the hospital, out of the clinical setting, and bring them to an art museum to teach them how to analyze works of art 
with the hope that when they return to the hospital, they'll be better observers of their patients. So with Yale's very gracious permission, I started a version of that program at the Frick Collection. And I invited uh, medical students from Cornell Medical School to come join us at the Frick for a very similar program. And it was very successful and we expanded to medical schools all throughout New York City and we invited nurses and social workers because the idea of being in the people business and thinking about the patterns of medicine just lent itself beautifully to looking at patterns and narratives in works of art. I find that so fascinating. And really, like you said, that changed your, your whole world. There was a group of FBI agents that came for this experience. And I wonder how you, as, as someone who was uh, introducing people to these artworks and, and thinking about this process, knew that art could be a guide to help groups work better together and make better decisions. Well, like everything else, it takes a village. I was out to dinner with some <laughs> friends in 2004, and I was telling my friends that I was so surprised about the limited vision of medical students through no fault of their own. You know, everything they knew was about hematomas and kidney stones and MRIs, <laughs> which is what you would expect from medical students. And a friend looked at me just and asked the question, why are you just doing this for medical students? Why aren't you doing this for other people who need keen and astute observation skills? And I said, like whom? He said, you know, like cops, people that investigate crimes. And I thought that was just a brilliant connection. So that Monday morning, I called, I called, called the NYPD, my local police department. And I said, you know, I have a great idea. I have this great idea. I train medical students to enhance their observation skills. And I think you should send homicide detectives to the museum for training. <laughs> well, that went over like a lead balloon. And I was transferred numerous times. But I finally got to a deputy commissioner who heard what I was saying. And six months later, Every newly promoted captain in the NYPD had to come to the Frick for training. And fortunately for me, that collaboration made it to the front page of the Wall Street Journal and my world exploded and I started working with all different divisions of the FBI and working in the military because I realized that the observation skills that were so necessary for medical students were readily adaptable to so many different fields. And if you go back to that initial power of art that we talked about, I was just channeling it in different directions. I think that's such a great, uh, you know, transition to make to, to think about how it's, it's a useful skill that can be applied to so many different arenas. And that brings us to your book, Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And I'm going to tell you, if you were here sitting with me in the studio, my copy looks like a feathered bird because I have so many, uh, little post-it notes and going, oh, I've got to, you know, talk about that. So I don't think I'll get to all my questions today. That's so nice to hear. I'm glad you're enjoying the book. Oh, I absolutely think this is, I feel like this is something that should be, you know, uh, used in classrooms and trainings. I just, so we want to tell people more about it because I think that, that um, it, it, it does not only does it help the people who come to it, but I think it helps us know art better and makes art more accessible. Uh, so you, you see art and use art in this book to sh- help us share our stories and sort of revolutionize the art experience. And so uh, tell us some of the ways that, that, you know, this process of looking at how artists handle problems, how artists, you know, manage their process and how that can translate to us helping with our own problems and what that's done to change the business world, the government. Uh, There's so much in here. Absolutely. And uh, as I said, I'm so glad you're enjoying the book. And I I will start by telling you how the book came to be, because I think that that's really crucial to understanding why it's applicable to all of us. I wrote my first book in 2016 called Visual Intelligence, Sharpen Your Perception, Change Your Life. And someone in the publishing agents in the publishing world came to me soon after the book was published and said, why are all these people coming to you? You know, (laughs) trauma nurses, hospice care providers, Navy SEALs. FBI agents, CEOs. What is it? She said, I understand they want to look at art, but why do they keep coming? And mm-hmm. this conversation was before the pandemic. And I said to her, let me think about that for a day. Let me come back to you with a good answer. And I realized all these groups are coming to me because they all have problems that need solutions. Mm-hmm. Everybody that was coming to me had a problem. And, the, you know, the, uh, the problems of the trauma nurses are not the same problems as Navy SEALs or banking vice presidents. But they realize that in any scenario, yesterday's solutions don't solve tomorrow's problems because we live in such a dynamic world. So I thought, you know what, let me leverage the artistic process. 
Human beings have been creating art for millennia. Let's think about the creative process and why that still works and why artists can still make their work and let's apply it to problem solving. And that's how the idea for Fixed was born. And that's why it's a very simple title, Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And basically what I've done is I've broken down the artist's process of creating a work of art into three sections, prep, draft, and exhibit. That's what an artist does, and each of those sections has a subset, and I have found that by working through with all of my clients, that model is applicable to the trauma nurse, the Navy SEAL, the bank vice president, and the NATO official. And it's so simple, but we take that that power of art and we're channeling it again instead of just enhancing observation and communication this time. Now we're really focused on problem solving. So that's how the book came into being, and I went back and I looked at all the people that I've worked with over the last five to ten years and thinking about the problems that they came to me with and said, how can I write a book that can be applicable to everyone from the stay-at-home mom to the person that works in the factory, from minor annoyances to really intractable dilemmas, and that's where the book came from. Oh, it's just a fascinating story. And, you know, I think early on in the, in the book, you mentioned the German filmmaker, I'm going to maybe say this wrong, uh, Wim Wenders. Um, I mean, I don't speak German. That's okay. I don't either. <laughs> and his definition of creativity was just obsessive problem solving. And I thought, you know, I've, I, I too have always believed in the value of a good question. And when you have a problem, you know, you got to start an inquiry, right? To figure out, you know, what is this? Or um, ask yourself a good question. What if? How do I? Well, what then? And, you know, what's another way? So there's lots of these questions lead to a lot of discovery. And that's part of the process that you do. Um, I want do want to tell listeners because I think this was also a, a component of of the book is that it's not about necessarily being comfortable in this process. That uh, yeah. you have to be ready. Um, you know, I, I will tell people that there's an amazing. We should. We. Sh- I wish we could share with listeners all of the uh, images in the book because the art represented in here. Um, your publisher has done an incredible job reproducing these. I know that is an extremely difficult task um, to, you know, have the quality that that uh, transcends the the you know from the pr- the actual painting to the page. So um, bravo to. It's to- a difficult process. I can imagine. And so throughout the uh, the book, there's a lot of artwork from all different styles and ages and, um, you know, just different ways of, of looking at art. But you, you, that's like the first thing you say in the book is get ready to get uncomfortable. Why is that so important? I'm glad you brought that up, Paula, because uh, it's not, I mean, some of the art, as you know, is, not all of it is familiar, but some of it is difficult to look at. That's mm-hmm. what art is, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to disturb anyone. But I am a firm believer, at the risk of sounding like a platitude, I am a firm believer that the best things happen on the exit ramp of our comfort zone. I really believe that when we leave our own boxes, and you know, we all have our own boxes. We know what we're good at. We know what success. We know what's successful. But when we leave those those boxes temporarily and go to the exit ramp of our comfort zone we think about see things and see things and give ourselves permission to look at things that we wouldn't normally look at and for most people looking at art is not something they do on a daily basis so by being willing to read my book or take one of my courses i'm giving them explicit permission to say look let's look at art together with the promise that i will connect the dots for you (laughs) so that when you go back to your everyday work this will apply to what you do. And the two things that come to mind, I once had a drug task force and, uh, official come up to me afterwards. He was a rough guy. And he came up to me after the training and he said, can I tell you something about this training? And I said, sure, go ahead. <laughs> he said, you kept talking about taking me out of the box. He said, "Miss Herman, you took me so far out of the box. Now would I know what to look for when I go back in? Ooh. And that's very powerful. That was powerful to me that I was able to give him those tools. And the second thing I wanted to tell you about looking at art is that it enge- and you know this, Paula, because you love you love art mm-hmm. incorporated into so much of what you do. But a colleague of mine once said, and I'm sure he didn't come up with this phrase, that when we look at works of art, it engages our brain in a way that no other stimuli does. When we look at art, you're using what they call the neuroplasticity of your brain. You're you're it's like a rubber band. You're stretching it in ways that you don't stretch when you're not looking at art. 
And my colleague said that neurons that fire together wire together. So that when you're looking at works of art and your neurons are firing in a certain way, my hope is that when you're confronted with a problem further on down the line, you can bring those neurons together to wire again. Think about what happened when you saw the work of art and let it help you solve your problem. I think that's fascinating, and we're discovering so more, much more about the capacity of the brain and ways that we can make these connections. I, I think uh, let's talk about how you design a session. So somebody comes and you know they have a problem in their you know business or their government job or their uh, you know detective work, and you know how do you help them define the problem? Because sometimes that can even be be difficult. And then uh, you know go, take us through the process of selecting the art and, and you know, you, you really do customize when you put together a program. I do. I do. And the first thing I like to do is to talk to my clients before we actually have a session. I want to know what challenges they're facing because I never give the same presentation twice. I have thousands and thousands of works of art in my archive. And if I know what the challenges are and I know who the audience is and some of the things that the organizers want to get out of this, I can really tailor the works of art and guide the discussion for maximum relevance and applicability. And the first step, as you said quite correctly, is defining the problem. And one of the biggest issues we have is when we all sit around the table to come to a meeting that we've all been to, to, you know, let's discuss this issue, I say let's go around the table and let's each articulate what our vision of what the problem is. Because even going into the room, everyone has a different perception of what the problem is. And to go in and say, okay, let's solve the issue. Let's define the issue first and not just in our head. Let's define the issue and articulate it to each other so we can make sure, A, we're all on the same page as we approach the ideas for solution, but also we can bring out details and nuances that will be helpful for all of us in finding a better solution for the problem. Because they might be doing something already, thinking that that's fixing it, but that it's you know it's clearly not because it's going on. <laughs> well, the best the best example I can give you is to go back to the Frick collection. I'll never forget. I had two cops in the homicide division standing in front of a 17th century painting, and I said, "Look at this for 10 seconds before you say a word." And then I asked each of them to describe what they saw in the painting, not what they thought of the painting, not what they liked or didn't like. What did they see? And they gave me two such completely different versions of what they were looking at. I turned around and said to them, if this is happening in the art museum, what's happening at the crime scene? Mm -hmm. What's happening in the operating room? What's happening in the boardroom? What's happening on the factory floor? If we all assume that we know what each other is seeing, thinking, and ultimately going to do. And it was this stark reality that, oh, my goodness, if we see this painting differently, how do we see things on the job differently? That's a phenomenal transition. Folks, this is Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. I'm Paula Granquist, and I'm here today talking with Amy Herman, the author of Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And this is such a fascinating book. I cannot wait for more people to discover this work. I, I think one, one way you might, uh, I, I love the way that you talk about your presentations and the uh, audiences that you work with. And one of my favorites was when you were dealing with a, a group of NBA uh, basketball security guys and gals, and yes. you were the last end of the day right before happy hour <laughs> presenter. Yes. And so part of your work, too, I think, is is knowing the audience and kind of you, you really must be really great on your feet at uh, drawing people in. So I'd love to, to hear more about how you do that, because that's not easy, an easy skill. Thank you. No, it is not. And it's one that I've worked on for many years. The good news is I can say that my preparation as a trial attorney ah. really helped me to not be intimidated by public speaking. <laughs> I've been yelled at by judges. I've been in, you know, really antagonistic courtrooms. So I'm not afraid of public speaking. But you can imagine, you know, I'm a woman of about five foot seven, and there I am in a suit and heels in front of a predominantly male audience who works, you know, um, it, it, with the NBA, making sure the basketball games are secure and no one gets hurt and the players can do what they're going to do. And I get up there and say, okay, fellas, we're going to look at art for the next two hours, and then you get to go to happy hour. That's going to go over like a lead balloon. And that is their, you know, their cue to take out their phones and start scrolling. And that's exactly what happened when someone introduced me and said, you know, Amy Herman's here from New York to 
help us look at art to help you do your job more effectively. And like on cue, everyone took a phone out. So I got up there and I took the mic and I said, let's do a replay. I said, you're going to be with me for the next two hours. I'm in charge. And I promise you're going to leave here thinking differently about your job. I could see on their faces that they were saying, who is this woman? And what am I doing here? And I introduced an exercise where I had them pair up and one of them had to close their eyes and one had to keep their eyes open. And they have 45 seconds to describe a Monet painting to each other. And I said, you better get every single detail right because the success of your job depends on it. And they were all in. They became so competitive and I'm going to describe this painting and this woman's not going to pull one over on me. And after two hours... I said, you know, you can go right to your happy hour, but the NBA has purchased a book for all of you, and I'd be happy to sign any of them. And I'm thinking, I am going to be alone at the back of that table. They're all going to run to happy hour. The line wrapped around the room, and I got hugs and got to sign each of their books because not only did I discover that about half that room was filled with retired NYPD officers, my hometown my hometown guys and women, um, they really were genuinely grateful for the opportunity because they said to me, any opportunity to help them do their job better and out of the box for them, not the same old, same old training, was really welcome for them. So not only did we have a good session, I went to happy hour with them and spent the evening with them, and it was just wonderful. <laughs> and I think that's a great example of how that's an audience you normally wouldn't think of would be, you know, think to gain anything from this type of training. And I'm curious, because one of the things that, that, you know, people struggle with is, you know, having a vocabulary for talking about art, having a comfort in being able to look at a piece of art and even know where to begin. So how do you develop that? Because that's a, a, you know, a, a tool that not a lot of people use, but it's essential to, you know, moving through this process. Well, I'm going to go back to one thing you just said about thinking about the skill that these people use. And I want to connect the dots for you as I have to do with all my clients because it's such a wonderful dotted line. You think about what a security manager at the NBA does. They are on the court. They have an earpiece in their ear. Their eye is on the general manager. Their eye is on the game. Their eye is on the door. And their eye is on the spectators in the arena. How much visual intelligence do those people need? They are balancing what they're hearing in their ear from security and other places, and their eyes and brain have to tell them information to which they have to react almost immediately. Of course, they need help with their visual intelligence. Anything that's going to make them sharper and more astute and be able to make that switch from what I see to what I do to what I say. So I I show them works of art, and I say, you've never seen this before. Tell me what you see and tell me what you you would do if you were on the right side of this painting and you were just entering the room. Mm. And it is directly applicable to their work on the basketball court. No, I'm not showing them paintings of basketball courts, and I'm not showing them charts. I'm showing them unfamiliar data, which is every single arena, because no two arenas are the same, no two teams are the same, and no two group of spectators are the same. And so I say to them, here's your data. Look at it, think about it, talk about it, and tell me what you would do, which is what they do at every single game. So the art itself, I'm not showing them art substantively. We're not talking about Gauguin versus Van Gogh. We're talking about What's in the picture? What do you see? What do you perceive? And what would you do if you were there? That is fascinating. And I think that is, is where it lends this, this idea lends it to making art even more accessible for everybody. Cause I think sometimes that's part of the, the, you know, the block for people is they don't even know how to have a conversation or engage with a piece that's of right. art. And th- so this, this book, you know, kind of takes, lets you feel more comfortable with that process. If that's something that's not familiar to you, cause there's, you know, there may be people that don't go on vacation and go to the art museum like, you know, I might do. <laughs> um, and, that's right. And, and so that, that's, that's where I think this book is, is for everybody. And you've divided it, the process into three core components, prep, draft, and exhibit. And I imagine, so I was curious about your, you know, did you research a lot of different artists thinking about how they, you know, worked on their process? Or how did you narrow it down to, to those three steps? Because that's, there's a lot of different processes that artists use. There are, and I I really wanted to distill it down to two things. Number one, something that almost all artists have to do, and number two, something that would be applicable across the professional spectrum. So, you know, someone who's a nurse and someone who's a construction worker and someone who's an architect or an engineer or, you know, a professional swimmer. Think of all the things we all have to prep, whether it's in the morning, 
whether it's when we get to the office, whether it's when we get into the classroom, then we have to draft. We have to think about what we're going to do substantively, and draft means, you know, setting all kinds of deadlines and doing preparatory sketches and preparing lessons and writing notes and practicing, and then exhibit. Exhibit can mean a lot of things. It can mean teaching a lesson. It can mean bringing your artwork into a museum. It can mean, you know, presenting a plan to the board of trustees. So not only did, because whether you're a sculptor or a videographer or a painter, you still prepped, prep, draft, and exhibit. And if you're a classroom teacher or a professional swimmer, you still do what's analogous to that. And so I wanted to break the book down, but then I have one work of art, The Raft of the Medusa by Jericho, 19th century French painter, who painted such a complex painting and it had so many obstacles and so many hurdles. I thought, here's my perfect paradigm in the art world to follow from the beginning of the book to the end to show how this particular artist did prep, draft, and exhibit and overcame so many of the obstacles that he did. And even in the end, he died before the Louvre bought the painting. He never knew what commercial success it would have, but yet he was able to exhibit all those steps, and it was a perfect paradigm. So one of the biggest takeaways from this book is when it comes to problem-solving, I want to remind readers, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. Sometimes <laughs> good is good enough. You know, Leonardo da Vinci carried the Mona Lisa around, finishing, 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 refining, refining. Well, then he died. Guess what? It was done. <laughs> Whether he thought it was done or not, it was done when he died. So sometimes you have to let good be good enough and don't let perfection be the enemy of good. That is such a... Um, a- a great explanation of, and and I love how that painting is kind of woven in throughout the entire book as you demonstrate these different different processes, and uh, it's it's just fascinating because you pull in so many different, uh, you know, there's history, there's technique, there's uh, style. I mean, there's all kinds of of different. Like every painting is like a window into a, another world, and if the more you spend, the more fascinating it becomes. Uh, but the place that people Isn't that need a good analogy? Isn't yeah. that a good analogy for who we are? We all come from different worlds. We do different things. We have different thoughts. And if we learn to engage with each other, think how much we can take away from each other. Just learning, listening, and opening our eyes. Exactly. And that's what the conversation about the paintings does. And I think that's an interesting way to help people feel comfortable. Because if you just put the problem in front of them and you know put that on the wall... You might, there's so much baggage and so much, uh, you know, history and, um, complexity to it that it would be hard to actually begin the, begin talking and begin seeing each other, begin listening. That's right. That's right. And what this does is cleans the slate. You know, when I, I take people to look at works of art or I introduce them to works of art in the book, I'm going to make the assumption that we're all at ground zero. I don't need you to have any knowledge of art. I don't need, certainly don't need you to have an art degree. I don't even have to have you like going to museums or looking at works of art. Think of this as data and a new opportunity to learn. And the promise that I make, and I haven't broken it yet, is after either being in my session or reading the book, your eyes are going to be opened and you didn't even know they were closed. That's all I want to do. I want to open your eyes in ways that you didn't even know they were closed. And I think that that's a great transition to that first step that might be surprising to a lot of people, and that is to clean your lenses. And we have to kind of come to that recognition that no matter who you are, what your experiences are, you bring something to that art experience that is a bias that you carry. And you, you know, how do you convince people? Because uh, th- that can be hard to admit, right? That I'm bringing something that might shade how I see this, interpret this, experience it. Sure. Well, I have a great example in art. If you'll, uh, of course, mind my sharing it. What happens is it is to explain bias, which you know people's eyes glaze over when we start talking about biases. And I put up two pictures of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, and. Uh, I I show my classes these two pictures of Abraham and Lincoln. And then in the next slide, I take down Washington and I put up Barack Obama. Mm. And I watch everyone's face change. Now, my classes are completely nonpartisan. I don't care if you like Barack Obama, hated Barack Obama, or were indifferent to his presidency. You have a personal feeling because you lived during one, if not both, of his administration. And then I say to them, 
when you look at George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, yes, we have respect for the early presidents in our country. We have we understand history, but no one in this room was alive during those administrations. And if you were, tell me what you eat for breakfast. <laughs> no one was alive during Washington and Lincoln's administration. No skin in the game. When I put Barack Obama up there, everyone has skin in the game. And believe it or not, looking at Lincoln next to Barack Obama affects how you look at Abraham Lincoln. It creates a bias. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, it, all biases are not bad. It's just, it's a natural part of the human condition. And when you look at Barack Obama, you have skin in the game. Like, dislike, indifference, I don't care what it is. You have a personal feeling. And when that personal feeling affects how you look at Abraham Lincoln, you are biased in how you're looking at Abraham Lincoln, where you don't have skin in the game. And for some reason, that clarifies the concept. People say, oh, I get it. Personal experience in one affects how you see something where you don't have a personal. That's such a great teaching moment. And I want to reference the every single time, Paula, every single time I watch people and they say, I get it. And I'm not listing 20 different biases. I'm showing them how having a personal experience affects a non-personal experience. And all I want to do is heighten their awareness to the idea that they might be biased. And I think people should look up the uh, portrait that you use. It's the Barack Obama by uh, Kahindi. Am I saying that correctly? Kahinde Wiley. Yes. Kahinde Wiley um, from 2018. And it's um, quite a contrast to Lincoln because of the um, just the, the colors, the, the background. And, and I, I think that's a really great contrast to start with in, in making comparisons between things. Because sometimes that's an they're easy... they're both compelling, aren't they? They're yeah. both compelling portraits in their own ways. And it's amazing how we attach associations to one that we don't have to the other. And that's a great way to explain bias. And I think that's a, a, an incredible um, start to the book because that's just the beginning that we have to, as you said, clean your lenses and know, okay, I got it. I do bring that with me and I accept that. <laughs> and now we can move to the, move on. Um, I have exactly. to say... I, I am forever changed because I saw in this book the image, the shoes on the Danube bank. Um, oh, yeah. I, I will admit, um, I had not seen that, that a piece. It's a, it's an outdoor, um, sculptural piece. And my first response was, that's amazing. People can walk from shoe to shoe trying on different styles and personalities and play new roles with each pair of shoes. I went to the playful place because that's what I bring to what the... What a wonderful interpretation that is that you brought. That yeah. You brought a playful piece. You know why? Because you're human and you know all about shoes and that we all wear shoes. And that's what... There's nothing wrong with thinking that. It's very, very human. Exactly. But then you reveal the, the story and the reality behind the shoes and it's quite grim and tragic. And it doesn't change the awesome, you know, exhibit there the piece of work but it adds another dimension and a layer and you know it's it's that change your shoes will be something in my background that I'll keep you know every time I'm I'm you know having a difficult conversation I'll be thinking about that can you expand for our listeners more of how that's such an essential step absolutely absolutely the idea of changing your shoes is we're all stuck in our shoes <laughs> especially in the divisive nation, the divisive place where we are all living. This is my position. This is how I feel. And I'm not going to change it no matter what you say. That's what people, you know, many of us feel this way. We're very polarized. And when I ask people to change their shoes, I'm not asking them to buy new shoes. I'm asking them to take their shoes off and try somebody else's shoes on with the full recognition that they'll be able to put their back, their shoes back on. And the idea is one of the uh, concepts that I address in my presentation is to meet people where they are, especially in the world that we're living in now. And the sculpture of the shoes that you talk about is a very powerful World War II memorial to people that were killed on the banks of the Danube. People were brought there by the Aircross militia, and they were shot. And, uh, and the shoes are a memorial to all the people, women, men, children, of all walks of life who left their shoes behind. And the shoes... They're so affecting and effective because we all wear shoes. We all Mm -hmm. like to wear shoes. And when I ask people when we're approaching the idea of problem solving to change your shoes is, as I said, not to buy them. Step out of yours. Step into somebody else's and say, you know what? I'm going to meet you where you are in the hope that I can listen to you and you'll listen to me. I'm not ceding to your position. I'm here to meet you to validate that you have a position that's different than mine. I want to hear yours. 
you can hear mine, and let's go from there. So if we both change our shoes, get out of our shoes that are stuck in the mud, walk to the center to meet each other with different shoes, doesn't mean we can't go put our own shoes back on, but at least we've had the benefit of hearing somebody else's position that is almost always going to be different than ours. I think everyone should have that experience. I just feel like that is such a profound, um, very concrete way of, of, you know, if you're th- having a conversation to, you know, um, just conjure that image into your brain and uh, allow mm-hmm. yourself to, okay, yep, I got to remember to think about my shoes. <laughs> That's right. Think about my shoes. That absolutely. So I'm, I'm so glad to hear, Paula, and I really appreciate you bringing up these tangible takeaways because I don't want people to think this is not an art book. I'm using art as a means to illustrate, I think, what are some important and new ways to think about problem solving. And uh, I, I'm going to use a quote from Henry James that uh, I love. some of these quotes are just so spot on. Henry James said, try to be the person on whom nothing is lost. Mm. And you know what? When you change your shoes, that really helps you to be the person on whom nothing is lost. It's not just about you. It's about what other people say, do, and think. And that only broadens your view. And I believe that, that a wider perspective makes for better decision-making and better problem-solving. I can see how that would, would transform when, when people have those light bulb moments in, in your workshops or from reading your book. And one of the things that uh, also was intriguing to me was the idea of, uh, it's a Latin term that was introduced to you, uh, festina lente, make haste slowly or hurry up at your own pace. And I think that may actually be at the core of a lot of things happening in the world is that we don't take the time to, you know, ruminate, to, um, you know, ponder and uh, dream and all of those things that might, because we live in such a world where it's, you know, I think about my kids and what they hold in their hands, the source of information, you know, is just instantaneous. Whereas, you know, when I was a kid, I remember I had to, you know, remember the question. And then at once a week, we went to the library. And that's when I could ask the librarian to help me find a book to answer the question or look in the encyclopedia. Right. Um, and so we think everything should be instant, but problem solving isn't instant. It's a process. It is, and it's not necessarily something that Alexa or Siri can help you do, <laughs> because Alexa and Siri are not known for their nuance. <laughs> so um, I, I love the phrase Festina Lente. It's something that I've taken with me through the pandemic, and the, one of the images that I used to illustrate the concept is a painting by Thomas Aikens of two men in an oar. They're in a shell. They're rowing crew, and it's a one-paired oared shell, It's called the Bigland Brothers from 1872. And when you look at the painting, you know immediately what do the Bigland Brothers want to do. They want to win the race. They want to be the first to cross the finish line. But if those two Bigland Brothers do not coordinate their strokes and make sure that their strokes in the water are in perfect synchronicity and if they're not communicating about the water and their strokes and how they feel, that boat is going to fall apart very quickly. And so I think rowing crew is, in a painting, is a great analogy for Festina Lente. We all want to cross the finish line. We all want to get there first. We want to be able to, you know, check that off the list and move on to the next thing. But if we don't do it mindfully and purposefully and in synchronicity with others, we're going to get there and have to start all over again and realize what a mess we've made of it. So Festina Lente goes back to, you know, taking a deep breath. And I can make I can uh, slow down to hurry up or hurry up to slow down. And it's something that has worked for me during the pandemic, and I wanted to share that with readers and people in my presentations. I think that's an, a, a great way to look at it. And it's it's good to, to um, explore problems as opposed to, you know, we don't want to push them off because they aren't going to fix themselves. <laughs> I think we need, right. we need to confront them. And that's kind of that's part of the, you know, maybe getting a little uh, uncomfortable for, for a little bit and sitting in that and being OK with it. Uh, there's yeah, so yeah. much more in this book. I'm, I'm just looking at my two pages of questions left in a few minutes. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> trying to imagine where we should go. Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that um, was interesting to me is how you you can uh, balance the idea of, so, so if you're looking at a piece of art, there's some instinct or intuition you might have in, in examining that piece. But then evidence also becomes a part of the process. And I, I, I was, I like that juxtaposition of um, not only knowing how you feel or, um, you know, what you see, 
um, it, 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 there's some good technique in that um, way of, of, of examining a piece of work. Absolutely. And, and that's why art gives us this evidence-based, gives us a template for doing an evidence-based analysis. When someone says, well, I don't like that painting because the woman's depressed. And I say, well, you know what? Let's step back. Number one, let's go from the subjective to the objective. Let's say how we think and how we feel to the end. But let's think about, let's talk about what's there. Let's talk about what it is that we see. And depression is, you know, it's a long process. We see someone who's not smiling. That's a huge road from someone who's not smiling <laughs> to someone who's depressed. So let's unpack all these things that we're saying. And the beautiful thing about art is, yes, it is highly subjective, but it doesn't mean you can't break down the subjective from the objective and be able to distinguish between the two of them. And one of the simplest takeaways that I used to use with students when I was at the Frick Collection is, say what you see before saying what you think. Ooh. Because if you come in and say, I think we need to you know, disband this group right away, well, why do you think that? What, what, on what basis do you say that? What evidence do you have? And so if we say what we think before saying what we think, we smooth the, tr- the road and the transition and we can make a segue and maybe bring others along with us. But when you come barging in like a bull in a china shop saying, I think this, what credibility does that have? And so art gives us an evidence-based way of saying, well, look, if you look in the upper left-hand corner and the right-hand corner, you can see the sun is starting to break through. It's not really raining here. And the scene is not as sad as you might initially think. I mean, there are just so many ways to approach it, but it gives people a template for using evidence-based discussions. And yeah, that was really uh, enlightening, and I think a good place to start because everybody can look and you know see a color, see a line, see a an object, an image, uh, um, you know, a, a relationship, uh, something within every piece of artwork. So it's it's a, a very universal way of beginning a, a conversation about a piece of art, and that's important. Well, that's exactly what you hit on. That is the key, I think, to the success of this program, and I hope to the applicability of this book is the bottom line is that everyone sees something. That is the bottom line. When someone says, well, I don't know anything about art, that doesn't matter. If we look at it together, everyone sees something, and I'm interested to know what you see. Mm -hmm. It's empowering to people to know that what they see can affect what other people see and how we think about what we see and ultimately how we solve problems. I think this is so fascinating. Folks, the book, again, is Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And your other book is Visual Intelligence, which people might also be interested in. I really do hope more more people are finding out about your work and using the ideas from, from this book. Um, let's uh, maybe take a look at... Um, Gosh, oh, and I think maybe maybe I'll end with this one because I I do have like twelve more questions, but we maybe it's even twenty because <laughs> I was I was just furiously taking notes and writing down things and you know grabbing quotes and um it's just so thank you for for putting this book into the world so that we can all share in that skill that you have and that process that that is easy to follow and easy to see how it's applicable to everybody. And, you know, I think um, one idea from the book that, that I'll take away as well is um, you talked about how, you know, history and stories and um, what we see is affected by where we are. And there was a Latin teacher, Ian Lockley, Lockie, excuse me, who mm-hmm. said, let's not accept stories as they were taught to us. Rather, let's bring our modern lens and energize a future generation to join us in fighting for a discipline we can be proud of. And I think that's so important because people, um, you don't have to know about, you know, 16th century and, you know, the, <laughs> what was happening or the techniques or the artist to be able to, to, you know, what you have with you is, is, is enough, right? And we can start with that. I hope so. I hope so, Paula. What you said is just key to all of this is bringing your modern lens, bringing your set of eyes attached to your brain which is unlike anybody else's, and looking at works of art to bring them into our world. And again, not using art as art, but channeling that power of art and using it as a new set of data to solve our problems. That's all I can ask of my readers, and I hope they'll come in with open eyes and an open mind. 
Exactly. And there, there are so many things to take away from this book. And, uh, I wonder if you have another project in, under, underway that, that, uh, might interest our listeners or, or pique their, um, you know, curiosity to visit sure. artfulperception.com, which is your website. And, uh, if you could tell yes. us about where you are in that process. I'm very excited to tell you and my readers that I have a third book coming out in September of this year, and it is a young adult version of visual intelligence adapted for 9 to 13-year-olds because these skills are not just for adults. And that book is called SMART, small S-M, capital A-R-T, Use Your Eyes to Boost Your Brain. And in a nutshell, it teaches young adults from 9 to 13 how to see, how to think about what they see, and how to talk about what they see. And the book is absolutely beautiful, and it's full of so many fun works of art. Adults and kids can read it together. It's, it's just, I'm so, so excited about this project to be able to give parents and uh, people with kids in their lives not only the power of looking at works of art to help them, but to help the young ones in their lives. And it was called SMART, and in, in the subtitle? Yes. Use Your Eyes to Boost Your Brain. It's available on Amazon now for pre-order, and it will be published in September. And I just got the advanced reader copy, and I am over the moon about it. Oh, and we are very excited for you as well. I think that's going to be Thank a spectacular you. edition. If people can start understanding that and having those conversations at 10, 11, 12 years old, imagine. Imagine where the world could because, be. Absolutely. And because kids, kids have no filter. So if you think adults, everybody sees something boy to those kids. My own son, poor kid, was raised with all these slides and works of art. <laughs> it really does help them to navigate this crazy and surreal world that we're living in, and art can give them an anchor, too, to think about what they see, what they think about what they see, and how they can communicate what they see. Wow. Oh, this has been, a, the <laughs> hour has zipped by, and I want to thank you, Amy, for, Amy Herman, for joining me, Fixed, How to Perfect the Fine Art of Problem Solving. And I want a, a quick shout out to Leslie Rossman, who keeps connecting me with some of the most amazing people uh, around our country who have amazing stories to share. And uh, we're all better for be- having had this opportunity to spend this time with you. So thank you. Thank you, Paula. It's been really a joy talking to you and keep thinking about art and that playful childhood. I think it will just light the way for you and broaden <laughs> your vision and seeing the world that you live in. So Thank you so much. Stay well. Yes, you you too. Folks, this is Art Zany Radio for the Imagination. And I want to thank you for uh, being a part of the show. And always don't forget to add some Art Zany to your life. And I, I hope that in the meantime, until next time, you will enjoy your imagination. You've been listening to Art Zany Radio for the Imagination with your host, Paula Granquist. Listen for Art Zany every Friday and Saturday at 9 a.m. right here on 1080 and on our website, kymnradio.net.